Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. It's the last chapter, the last book in the Bible. If you're visiting with us, we've been studying this book for quite some time. We are slowing down in this last chapter, in this epilogue, beginning in verse 6 to the end, taking in these five final exhortations, which are a repetition of the exhortations that God gave to all the churches that represent all the churches in the world in the first three chapters of Revelation. He's clenching the nail. He's making sure we understand what we need for life and godliness in this world. And we have found throughout this study that uh, what he has to say to us, as is true of the whole Bible, is always relevant to where we are. And I want you to especially pay attention to these two verses today because the, the, the point is one that we need desperately. We are a weary people, not just second prayers, but all Christians everywhere, and especially in the last few years, a weary people. We are experiencing the kind of persecution at times that is promised to us in Scripture and in this book. We are living in a dangerous world, dangerous biochemically and, and dangerous uh, geopolitically, dangerous to our faith. The temptation is to quit. Temptation is to give up. Temptation is to throw in the towel. And as John has been telling us in every chapter of this book, we must persevere. But how in the world are we going to do that? As is true of every, every command of Scripture, he not only tells us what we need to know, what we need to do, but how we are going to do it. It's no less true, verses 13 and 14 of Revelation chapter 22. Jesus says... I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. <clears throat> We've just finished the, or not too long ago, the Winter Olympics, which is always full of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. Great stories of, of uh, conquering personal fears and achieving personal goals, but also great stories of heartache as well. One of the most agonizing scenes I ever watched in the Olympics was in 2016. The Olympics were at in Rio, this is the Summer Olympics, and this was the, this was the, the, the 137-kilometer bike race among the women. And um, Mara Abbott, the, the tremendous world-class cyclist from the United States, this has been training for this for most of her life, over a decade. She, was, she had committed herself to becoming the best cyclist in the world, winning the Olympics. This was her opportunity. She, by her own confession, said she, she didn't have the endurance or the, the power to sprint, but she had the endurance and the power to outclimb anyone in the world. That's where she was counting on winning the race. 
Sure enough, she stayed with the pack through most of the first part of the race, and then they came to the Vista Chinese, that gigantic mountain at the end, which sometimes grades of over 20%. She broke away from the pack, passed the pack, and there was only one person between her then and the finish line, the Dutch, Annemiek van Vluten. Annemiek takes crest the hill, crest the mountain. She's sailing down the other side in excess of 50 miles per hour. Her wheels lock up. She crashes into the granite curb. Now no one is between uh, Mara Abbott and the finish line. She's at least 36 minutes ahead of the next person in the race. She comes down to the last several kilometers. Now it's within hundreds several hundred feet of the finish line. She's, she's destined to win. There's no way she's going to lose. And out of nowhere come three cyclists who have been in a peloton. They've been cooperative drafting through the whole thing. And they have, and they have saved their energy for this last kick. And they pass her at the last second. Gold, silver, bronze. And she's number four. You remember that? You remember her collapsing into the arms of her coach who's been with her her whole career. It was an agonizing scene. Seems so unfair. Somebody should have moved the finish line farther up. So she should have won. And there are no prizes for the fourth place. The victor's prizes only go to the first three, gold, silver, bronze. And they finished for the prize, she came in fourth. Only those who cross the finish line get the prize. The finish line ahead of the others. Those who keep the rules. John is encouraging us to something similar, although at the same time very different. He tells us not to quit. He challenges us that, that uh, as he has said in the first several chapters of Revelation, the prize goes to the victor, the one who perseveres to the end. These are the ones who receive the prize. They're the ones who are considered to be conquerors. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of feel this way as I'm listening to myself. Can't you come up with something more encouraging? We're already tired. We're worn out. We're discouraged. How wouldn't it be reasonable for us to quit? I felt that way myself. Some of you are in a state of depression. Some are so discouraged, you want to throw in the towel. Some of you are so persecuted for your faith, feel so alone, feel like the Lord hasn't heard you. You've asked him for the desires of your heart, and he apparently hasn't given you any of them. And you say, why? What is it? Why is it worth anything to follow the Lord? John says the same thing as he said throughout the book. You must not quit until you have finished. So if that is the command, if we are to persevere to the end, how in the world are we ever going to do that? We do not have the power in ourselves. We don't have the goodness. We don't have the moral uh, resolve. We don't have the consistency. How are we going to do it? This is that point at which you can answer with the Sunday school answer. It is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. 
And Jesus is the one who tells us not only what we must have, he supplies it. And then he also supplies that enablement, that power. He also supplies that motivation, both of which are seen in these two verses. Look, first of all, at verse 13. This is what you and I must have. We must have a good beginning with Jesus. We, we must have who Jesus is. We're never going to be able to persevere to the end, to cross the finish line, if we do not have who Jesus is. And it's all summarized in these simple words. He is, I am, he says, the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. It's inscribed there in the front part of the of the balcony, the alpha there, the omega there. It's the same as A to Z, communicates the same thing. I saw a repair shop, a car repair shop said uh, A to Z auto, presumably you can drive your car in there and they can handle any problem that your car has from an alternator to a zinc battery. A to Z, everything in between. Jesus says, I am everything from the beginning to the end of what you need. So the very first thing we have to say is the very first stop you have to make is with Jesus. You have to begin with him if you haven't yet. If you have not gone to Jesus and said, I do not have the righteousness and the endurance, the perseverance to run this Christian race that you tell me to, there's no way I can stand before you in judgment on my own record Please, Lord Jesus, give me that righteousness you have obtained, you have secured on the cross for me. Substitute it for my sin. Take my sin. Give me your righteousness. Move into my life that the life I live, I may live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's where you must begin. If you've never asked Christ to be your Lord and Savior, that's where you must begin. But guess what? It's also where you must begin if you've walked with Jesus many, many years. That's why we say here that we're constantly retelling the gospel. It's not just that we tell you the gospel, you get saved, and then the rest is up to you. We must always be hitting this reset button, always go back to Jesus. So wherever you are in your walk with Christ today, this is the first place you must always begin every moment of the day, every day, back with Jesus. And the one who through whom all creation came, the one who is the source of all things, is the one who must be your source for everything needed in the Christian life. And then he's not only the Alpha, he is the Omega. He is the purpose, he is the end, he is the goal of all of life. And unless he is, you will grow hopeless. This life will disappoint. You won't find what you need. It'll always let you down. Jesus is the point of every life. Jesus is the point of all of history. When when Paul says, uh, that uh, in Ephesians, that, uh, that, uh, that all things will exist. All things exist and all of history is moving toward this one goal, the praise of his glorious grace. You can't understand what's happening in your life. You can't understand what's happening in the world unless you understand that God in his sovereign mercy 
is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and to the praise of his glorious grace. It may seem counterintuitive as you look at things with your own eyes, but you may with confidence in the risen son of God know that he is not only the beginning of all things, but he is the end and the purpose and the goal of all things. And therefore he is Lord over everything in the middle. You and I, if we're going to persevere, must know first of all that everything we need is ultimately in who Jesus is. But then how does he, what does he do for us? If that is who he is, how does he, how does it benefit us, what he is in the way we live? Our text tells us not only is he the alpha and the omega, but he is the one who is the source of our holiness. Now, where do I get that? In verse 14, he says, I want you to realize you are blessed, you are happy as you wash your robes. Now, there's the, 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 the allusion is to the temple. It is to the, it is to the purification rites of that Old Testament worship. And it's just a manner of speaking. He's saying this is the way, this is the way we, we will, ex- this is the way we have a relationship with the Lord and how we will experience it into all of eternity as we are pure, as we are holy. And, and that means then that we need two works. Actually, it's one work, but we divide it because our minds are so small. Two works from Jesus to make us qualified to walk with Jesus and to inherit eternal life. Both of them have to do with holiness. There are two, two terms in systematic theology that have been developed in order to capture a phenomenon that we find in Scripture. One is called definitive sanctification. You won't find those words in the Bible because they're too long, too complicated. Definitive sanctification. And the other is progressive sanctification. And it's our attempt to, get, to, to capture something, a phenomenon that's happening in Scripture, and it's this. At one and the same time, the Bible says Christians who receive the gift of of Christ, Christians are holy and they're becoming holy. Both of those concepts can be found in one verse. You don't have to turn there. It's in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. You just write it down. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, I write to you who are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, put on, therefore, humility and compassion and gentleness and kindness and patience. Both of those ideas are there. You are holy and yet you're becoming holy. This is what happens. When, when Christ calls you to himself, you say, Lord Jesus, save me. He joins you to his life. And God then looks at you through the holiness of Christ. So God says, that person is holy because he can't see us except through Jesus. That person is holy. You are declared, you are defined as holy. But God also sees us. He doesn't forget about us. So he sees us as we are. And so he says, yes, this is who you are. This is your status. But now I'm going to work grace in you so that you gradually become actually who you are. 
Not only am I going to declare you to be holy, I'm going to enable you to become holy. I'm going to do that through Jesus. He does both through Jesus. How does he declare that you are holy while you're still unholy? Because Jesus, when Jesus came, he lived in your and my place. He didn't just die on the cross for us. He lived in our place. Jesus, Jesus was repented in our place. He believed in our place. He defeated temptation in our place. He kept all of the commandments in our place. That's why he had to live uh, several decades before he died on the cross. We call that active righteousness, the active record, the attainments of Christ on our behalf. That's what God imputes to us too. So he looks at us and he says, at every place that we have turned the wrong way, Jesus has turned the right way and he's taken the right way and he's substituted it for the wrong way. You are holy. But we know ourselves that we continue to sin. So how does that go on? He says, so I'm now causing you to become who you are progressively. Paul puts it together this way in another place. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And that's not of yourselves. Even faith has been given to you. It is the gift of God, lest no one should boast. And you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he created in advance for you to do. So God declares you holy. He enables you. He calls you to be holy, and he enables you to live that holy life. The life I live now, he says, Paul says, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Jesus not only joins you to himself, he moves into you and enables you to live this way. Where do we get all of that in this, in this verse? Because he says, he says, blessed are those who wash their robes. You say, ah, no, you have just undercut. The Bible has just undercut everything that you said, George. You said that uh, Jesus has declared us holy. Here it says that the only ones who are going to be blessed are those who wash their robes, those who make themselves holy, who live the right way. Yes, that is true that those who will arrive in heaven are those who live in the general direction of obedience. But have you forgotten chapter 7, verse 14? When we were carried up before the throne and we were seen who we were going to be someday, he says these have washed their robes. Or even more clearly, Revelation 19. Remember that beautiful scene of the wedding supper of the Lamb and the bride who is the church? We are the bride. We are together, the bride, the church of Jesus Christ. He says, that church, you are going to be so unbelievably beautiful because you are going to be dressed in fine linen, bright and clean. And fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear, given to you. And then he puts in parentheses, lest you miss it, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. There it is. God says, I'm going to call you to myself. I'm going to join you to Christ. I'm going to declare you definitively holy. And then I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to gradually enable you to become who you are. And you're going to be obedient. You're going to walk in good works that I've prepared in advance for you already to do. And by the time you get to heaven, you're going to be 
clothed in beautiful garments, fine, fine linen, bright and clean. They're given to you to wear. It's by my grace. And those, that fine linen, it stands for the righteous acts of the saints that I have also given to you to wear. It's hard for us to understand those things. Those are two mysteries. Where does, where does, where does your free will, where does your will leave off and Jesus take over? We can't understand that. We have finite minds. But here, I'm going to give you a very imperfect illustration. An imperfect illustration because we're trying to illustrate something that is mysterious. So it's going to be imperfect. So don't tell the presbytery I could be tried for heresy with this illustration. But we're just doing it for te- teaching purposes. It's something like this. This relationship between Jesus living out his life in us and our living in Jesus. It's something like when I learned to fly in high school. I only had a limited amount of money, so I had to, I had to get it done in a, in a relatively few hours. I learned in Blyville, Arkansas, where it was good and flat, and I could land anywhere I needed to in an emergency. And uh, I learned, I, I, I learned, and when I finally learned how to get the plane off the ground and back without killing myself, then I was identified as a student pilot, heavy on the student, light on the pilot. But then I had to had to go back home and continue my training. But in the process there, a, f- a previous student pilot had crashed the plane that I was supposed to be training in. So I had to wait six weeks for the plane to be rebuilt, and then I forgot everything that I'd ever known. So I've effectively had to be retrained. And the very patient instructor would take me up hour after hour, day after day after day. And, and, uh, and this is the way he would teach me. He put his hands lightly on the yoke, that's the steering wheel, and his feet lightly on the rudder pedals, just makes it go right and left. And when I would turn left, when I should turn right, he would correct. And when I'd push on the right rudder, when I should have pushed on the left rudder, he would correct. When I pushed the nose down, when I should have pulled it up, he would correct. And so time after time after time, we would try to, try to land, and he would have to correct and take over, and we would land. Finally, one day we circled again, we landed, and I kind of looked down like this, and he said, good landing. I said, I didn't land the plane, you're always taking over. He said, this is where my hands have been, just right here. Living with Christ is something like that, not exactly. But it is, it is our taking responsibility, looking at the word, obeying, But it's ultimately Jesus living out his life in us, moving us generally in the right direction until he gets us home and makes us perfect. Whereas one theologian says, here's one way to say it. You take the first step, Jesus will take the second, and by the time you get to the third, you realize he took the first one anyway. Jesus says, I... I'm going to bless you as the Alpha and Omega. I am going to cause you to wash your robes, to live in a holy way, even as I have declared you already to be holy. This is what we need. We need that assurance that Jesus is going to live his life in us and get us home. Now, 
more quickly, a concept that you've seen many times. What are we going to what are we going to experience when we get there? Jesus not only assures us, I have the power, I will give you the power, I will make you, I will give you all the resources you need to persevere to the end. That's the enablement portion. We also need motivation. We also need to know what is ahead of us. And here he says, this is what I'm going to do for you. You're going to be blessed and have the right to the tree of life and enter the city through its gates. You're going to be happy, first of all. You're going to be welcomed into the city gates. I've called the sermon through gates of splendor because this is the, this is the, the, the line from the hymn, um, the thine is the glory, that those martyrs, Jim Elliott and others sang right before they went to those, those Hurani people in the eastern part of Ecuador in the 1950s. And they, were, they, were, they had committed themselves to taking the gospel to them. They were speared to death. And just before they went on that mission, they sang, thine is the glory. And then, the, and the, and then one of the lines is, we will be welcomed home through gates of splendor. Jesus is going to give you everything you need so that you are welcomed home. That you are made not only welcomable, but you are genuinely welcomed. Some of you have a hard time right this day believing that God loves you. It's even more mind-blowing to think that he's really going to be happy when you get home. That he, you are going to be happy because he is happy. And Jesus is going to say, enter into the joy of the Lord. I've been waiting for you to, to embrace that inheritance which I prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I've been working on getting you here. And you're going to be welcomed and blessed because you're going to be given the right to the tree of life. Exousia is the Greek word. I will give you the power. I'll give you the qualification. I'll give you the authorization to eat from the tree of life. Why is that so significant? Remember all the way back into Genesis when Adam and Eve, their loyalty was being tested by the Lord. Will you trust me enough to provide everything for you so that you could leave one tree not eaten? Don't touch that tree. Don't, don't, or don't eat from that tree. And they didn't trust him. They thought he's holding out on them. They ate from the tree. And they were, they, were, they were immediately ashamed. They were ashamed of their own nakedness. They were ashamed of who they were at the core of their being made in the image of God. They tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves. They ran into the bushes to hide. And, a, and an angel with a sword guarded the entrance so that they could not get to the tree of life. All of that is going to be reversed. The angel is going to put down his, his sword. And he's going to welcome us. And he's going to welcome us because the gospel not only forgives our sin, but the gospel begins to make us more and more like Jesus, living into who we are as image bearers of God. 
And he keeps working it down deeper and deeper and deeper into our core until he ultimately cures our shame. Even those things that have shamed us or those things that we've done that shame us, that constant whisper and accusation of shame. God will not finish his work of sanctification until he cures the shame of every person he has saved. And when that moment comes, when he has finally put to death every vestige of shame in those he has saved, then the Bible says in Romans 8, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay. The creation itself will cheer and celebrate. Their shame is taken away. They're no longer hiding. They are fully the adopted, unshamed, intimately related children of God. Let the whole creation respond with gratitude. That's what lies ahead of us. The welcome, the curing of shame, the welcome into through the gates. He says, come in through the gates, not through the back door. Jesus has qualified you and will qualify you to get across the finish line and experience the full approval. To experience it, you have it now, but to experience it with your eyes and ears. God himself saying, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. There's a major defect with that opening illustration. If I left you with that, that would be a, a, a case of, of a sermon malpractice. Because you could leave thinking, oh my, to get across the finish line means I have to finish in the top third. To receive the crown of victory, the crown of glory, I've got to win. I've got to beat out other people. I've got to be better than others. That's not the point. So we need another Olympic illustration. Let's go back to the 1992 Olympics. It was a semifinal for the 400 meter. And Derek Redmond, the best runner, one of the best runners in the world, had already blown out his competition in the, in the quarterfinal. Now he's in the semifinal. And he was, he was poised to win it. Came flying around the last leg. He was there the second half of the, of the race. He was over halfway when his hamstring tore. Still running on adrenaline, he started limping, tiptoeing until the pain overcame him. It crippled him. Went down to the track. He struggled to get up. He couldn't. He's writhing in pain. They're heading toward him with a stretcher. And then out of the stands came a man, a big man with a duckbill cap, said, just do it, and a T-shirt and, and shorts and, and, uh, and, and white tennis shoes, obviously a dad. <laughs> fights off the competition. He fights off the security. They're trying to hold him back. There's nobody. He's a big man. Fights toward his son and grabs his son, 
Two more times, security tries to stop him. He picks him up, and together they limp across the finish line. Morgan Freeman, who did a documentary on it, years later said, they finished in last place, but Jim and Derek Redmond finished the race. They finished. In the Christian life, you don't have to finish ahead of anybody else. Jesus just calls you, come home. And Jesus is more invested in your sanctification than you are. He's got his reputation at stake. And so the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have have conspired this plan to get you home. The father says, son, go get them. It's going to cost you your life. The son gets them, goes back to the right hand of the father. He says, Holy Spirit, go get them. You've got to bring them home. And they're daily and constantly fighting off all of our enemies in order to get us home. And everyone finishes a conqueror. And everyone of Jesus' children, makes across the finish line, everyone gets a crown. It's a number no one can count. Wherever you are, your first step is turn to Jesus today. And then never quit doing that until you open your eyes and you see him face to face. And he says, Welcome home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for finding us with your word by sending your Holy Spirit and enabling us to believe what we read and hear. Please do it today. Please call that one who has yet to receive you as Lord and Savior to start that race. For those who are weary in the race, wanting to quit and never start again, pick them up. Get every one of us home. And in so doing, get a name for yourself. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.